Thank you so much, Deacon Susan, for that creative leading of uh, the reading of God's Word. Good morning, everyone, and thank you as well, Elder uh, Adrian, for leading us in songs. Morning, everyone. Uh, I ask you to please keep your Bibles open to Nehemiah 12 and 13. And also, uh, if you have downloaded the sermon uh, outline uh, in the e-bulletin, that will be helpful to refer to uh, as you follow the talk. Please now join me in prayer together. Prepare our hearts, O God, to listen to your word and obey your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, as we begin, let me just ask you, what are some promises to change that people have made to you? Okay. And so, what changes did people promise you? And how long did those promises last? Near the end of Trump's presidency in 2020, BBC as well as other news outlets, they did a, a tally of his campaign promises uh, made in 2016, and they counted them and see if he kept them. So some of those promises like corporate tax cuts and reshaping of the judiciary, right, they were implemented. While others, like building that famous border wall, where it's still not there, right? The border wall with Mexico and deporting all illegal immigrants made no progress at all. A few of them, like quitting the Paris climate deal because Trump doesn't believe in climate change, they were implemented, okay, but very quickly reversed by President Biden. See, even the most powerful politicians, the most powerful men on earth, are powerless to make changes and to sustain these changes. So what hope do you and I have? How many of us here make, have a habit of making New Year resolutions? You made a resolution this year to exercise more or to read the Bible more and to pray more. How many of you? All, all wise already. I don't dare to make resolutions. <laughs> okay. So if you have made any resolutions for this year, 2020, this is the beginning of June, right? So we are halfway through the year. And it's a good time to take stock. How many of these resolutions have you kept? Okay. Very often, the initial change that we see at the beginning of the year will start to fizz out at some point, uh, sometimes as early as February, right? So what hope, brothers and sisters, what hope do we have to change our miserable lives, to turn it around and to see lasting change? What is our hope in life and in death for a complete renewal. Well, today we'll be exploring this, this question, what is our only hope for change in this very last portion of Nehemiah? Uh, we're looking at chapter 12, verse 27, to chapter 13, verse 31. And here God would use Nehemiah to do three things. First, he will lead the people to dedicate the war that has been completed. Right. Secondly, he will organize the service of the temple. And third, he will reform the people. We will see the celebration of the people at the dedication of the, of the war and the compliance of the people to the law. But all these changes would be undone as soon as Nehemiah went away. And so as he came back, he had to do a confrontation of the people in his final series of reforms. In terms of context, what we've seen so far, since today is the last week, let's do a bit of recap. 
We've seen that in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15, that the war of Jerusalem had been completed in 52 days. And this is with the help of the Lord. And then after that, Nehemiah did a census or a roll call of the returnees before Ezra the priest called out or read the law to them. And this was then followed by the celebration of Jewish feasts, the confession of sins, and the covenanting of the people with God. And then finally, we end with a commendation of those who have returned to live in Jerusalem. So first, as we look at uh, chapter 12, verse 27, Nehemiah is going to dedicate this war. And we will see the celebration of God's people here. We pick up the narrative from after the people have made a written covenant with God, and the completed war is now ready to be dedicated or consecrated to God. So let me ask you, if you are doing a celebration, what's the first thing you must organize, the first thing you must get? Okay? If you are doing uh, a celebration, one thing you must not do without is music, right? And so the people needed music for this celebration. So they first booked the singers and the musicians. But this is no ordinary band. Right? We look at verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings and with songs, or with, with singing, with cymbals, harps and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgah, and from the region of Jiva and Asmaveth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the walls. In, in this passage, the Levites and the singers, they likely refer to the same group of people, and they are from the tribe of Levi. They are perhaps a guild or a professional class of singers and musicians, right? So we know that the airlines, the F&B industry and other industries, they were severely impacted by COVID. Right? Many people were made redundant. Uh, now as travel and hospitality resume, I uh, start to see, you may also notice that eateries and restaurants are putting up advertisements for new positions, right? Uh, for their service crew. Well, this week, just this week, CNA reports that applications for cabin crew positions have gone up as well. I quote from this article, SIA said on Monday, May 30th, that it aims to recruit around 2,000 cabin crew members this financial year, with more than 800 applicants selected so far since the airline restarted its recruitment drives in March. See, as Singaporeans resume travel for work, for leisure, uh, we need more people to service us on the planes. But like the cabin crew who took up other jobs during this pandemic, right, they have moved on to other jobs, these Levites and singers have also relocated outside of Jerusalem throughout the province of Judah. And this is because their role in the temple became redundant in the exile 90 years ago. But now they are being regathered for this dedication. 
So perhaps first, these priests and Levites must go for refresher course, must go for upskilling, right? Like the airline pilots, right? They, you want them to go for reorientation, right? Would you trust them if they haven't flown for months, right, to fly your planes and bring you across the ocean? Okay? Likewise, the sons, these sons of the singers may be new to their father's former profession. So don't they need an audition? Right? Don't they need singing classes to get certified? Well, it seems like they don't, okay, because the fathers may have passed on the know-hows, but there's only one criterion for them, and that is for the priests and the Levites to be purified. Okay, that's the only criterion. And this, this purification may involve the washing of their bodies and clothes, sacrificing a sin offering, uh, perhaps fasting and abstinence from sex. Only then can they purify other people and purify the city gates and the wall. In verse 31, Nehemiah brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall, so they stood on the wall, and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. Okay, so there were two great choir processions, and the two processions likely started together. It's a bit small on the map, but in the middle uh, left, right, uh, they perhaps started together from the valley gate, and they moved in opposite directions on top of this newly constructed wall. The first group was led by Ezra, the scribe, and it goes downward in a counterclockwise direction, right past the dung gate, the fountain gate, uh, above the, the house of David and the water gate on the east, and they finally end their procession at the temple. The other group led by Nehemiah himself uh, would go northward, in a, count, in a clockwise direction, past the tower of the ovens, the broad wall, gate of Ephraim, gate of Yashana, fish gate, tower of Hananel, tower of the hundred, sheep gate, gate of the guard, and finally ending in the temple as well. So at this point, the temple remains the center of Israel's worship. Along the way, they were singing thanksgiving songs and they were accompanied by string, percussions, and wind instruments. Did you see these traditional Irish instruments that were used by the Getty Music Band? Right? So, uh, yeah, I had the privilege and opportunity to see them up close because I helped uh, in one trip to transport it to and fro. Okay, some of these instruments look quite small, okay, but when they play together, they are able to create an earth-shaking sound. I remember walking into, the, uh, into, into Adam right, when they were doing rehearsal, and the whole room was shaking right, because there was no one inside. Right? So the, the whole room was really shaking. It's like a rock concert. And that's the effect of this corporate worship of God's people in the temple. Okay, in verse 43, And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. What's the emphasis here? Very clearly, emphasis is on joy. This word appears five times in this last verse. God doesn't just grant help to the people to rebuild the wall. He also grants joy at its completion. The joy of the Lord has become the strength of His people. It's not the war that protects the people. It's the joy of the Lord that's the protection place for
for his people. So brothers and sisters, there is a place for work in God's kingdom, but also a rightful place for rejoicing when that work is done and even in the midst of doing it. Because our God isn't some joyless Scrooge. He is not a harsh taskmaster who doesn't want joy for his people. That's not the biblical picture of God. Although many Christians, many uh, Christian disciples seem to have this false image of a joyless God. And perhaps this arises from our legalistic mentality. Here he is the one who made them rejoice with great joy. I remind you of the, the answer to question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It asks, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So brothers and sisters in Christ, let us learn to enjoy God, even as we work to glorify Him. The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Many would have heard and wondered at what was happening, this noise of loud rejoicing. So perhaps John Piper wasn't wrong to go further and suggest that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Right? As we enjoy God, the world comes to hear about this God. Next, as Nehemiah organizes the temple, we shall see the compliance or the obedience of God's people. In both chapter 12, verse 44, and chapter 13, verse 1, we read this, on that day, Right? So this passage was describing what happened on the day that the wall was dedicated. This tells us that there were two other joyous things that took place on that day. First, the appointment of temple officers and then the reading of the law. First, in verse 44, men were appointed over the storehouses, the contributions, the first fruits and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered, and they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. So the first thing was officers were put in place to oversee the gathering and the distribution of the tithes and offerings, and singers and gatekeepers were appointed as well. All of these officers did their job well. They followed the original instructions of King David and King Solomon for the temple. Right? So just as we may give big angpaos and gifts to the cleaners and security guards in our estates, sometimes during festivals, right? we want to show appreciation for them doing their jobs well. Uh, these people were delighted in these temple officers as well. In fact, the word here is again rejoiced. Right? And they willingly gave toward their support, not simply because it is required by the law, not because they must, but because they want to. They want to support them. And so faithful ministers encourage faithful and joyful worshippers. In verse 47, All Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites. 
And the Levites set apart that which is for the sons of Aaron. The sons of Aaron here are referring to the priests. So the Levites who are in charge of the collection also didn't hold back. They didn't withhold the rightful dues from their brothers, the priests, who were busy doing uh, the, the temple work. And this temple is now well organized. All the temple officers are well provided for. The worship of God's people has been re-established in Jerusalem. Now comes the second happy thing that took place on that day. The reform of God's people themselves by the reading of the law. And we read this in chapter 13, verse 1. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonites or Moabite should ever enter the, the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. It seems like the people were continuing their, their regular practice of public reading of the law, right, which they started in chapter 8 and chapter 9. And the portion of the law they were reading here clearly refers to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 to 5. The language is the same. Right? God prohibits the inclusion of pagan Ammonites and Moabites into the assembly of God because these pagans posed a corrupting threat to the purity of God's people. This exclusion doesn't apply to the proselytes to the Jewish faith like Ruth the Moabitess, right? Let me ask you, how many times do you have to tell your kids to take their shower or to tidy up their rooms? before it gets done. Okay? Or maybe employers, how, how many times do you need to get the employees to return to the office? Right? Just like Elon Musk, who had to issue this fiery mandate this week, uh, I quote, that everyone at Tesla is required to spend a minimum of 40 hours in the office each week, or else you're considered fired. Our words often have no effect on people unless there is penalty. Right? We threaten to impose penalties. Who's going to return the trays unless NEA uh, imposes that $300 fine, right? Even if our words can sometimes change behavior, they have no power over the hearts and attitudes of others. See, our human words cannot compare with the glorious effect of God's word doing its work in human hearts by the power of His Spirit. Earlier on, the people's Bible study had led to the observance of the Jewish feasts and the confession of their sins. Here, it also results in ready obedience. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. The people were determined to protect their ongoing fidelity to God by putting away all potential corrupting elements. Brothers and sisters in Christ, friends, do we take time to allow God's Spirit to do His work in us as well, to work through God's Word to have His sanctifying effect on us? Or do we resist the Spirit and reject His Word? Or perhaps you may reason that the obedience of these people uh, was also fueled by a spiritual high, right? 
because they had just participated in that joyous war dedication ceremony. And it could be true. Right? There is both the high as well as the heart obedience uh, that God's Spirit brings. And so often we can actually go away from our spiritual highs, right? whether it's a church camp, which we all miss, right? or a Getty Singh concert. We come away with a strong resolution to love God and serve Him more fervently, more faithfully, or to change something that is wrong in our lives. The question is, how long will it last? How great will it be if we can end with that spiritual high? And that's it, right? How wonderful it will be if the book of Nehemiah should end here with the willing compliance of God's people to God's law. Unfortunately, we have the rest of chapter 13, right? And chapter 13 tells us very sadly that this change doesn't last. And so Nehemiah must reform the people again. In chapter 13, verse 4 to the end, we shall hear of Nehemiah's personal account as he confronts God's people. Chapter 13, verse 4 begins with, Now before this, right? So it seems to place this event afterwards, right? Before the dedication of the war and before the organization of the temple. However, I believe that this phrase can and probably should be translated more literally as and in the face of this. Right? And in the face of this, meaning that these events are actually subsequent rather than before the events of chapter 12. And also they took place in spite of everything that had taken place on that day, the day when the war was dedicated and the temple was organized. So the question is, how far ahead in time is Nehemiah bringing us here? Verse 6 tells us, while, there was, while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. See, back in chapter 1, verse 1, we learned that it was in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign when Nehemiah heard about the plight of his people and about Jerusalem. In chapter 2, verse 1, it was in the same year that he received permission from the king to rebuild the wall. And so from the 30, 20th year to the 32nd year, you can do the math. How many years roughly has it been? 12 years, right? So Nehemiah served as governor for 12 years before he went to the king. And this rebuilding, this wall dedication took place at the beginning right, of his 12 years. And then after some time, which is unknown, Nehemiah then returned to Jerusalem to begin his second term as governor. And so in the in-between, over these 12 years, to his horror and great disappointment, Nehemiah discovers that the reforms accomplished in his 12 years as governor have all been undone. We wouldn't have time to look at this portion in great detail, but let me just quickly sum up the four problems or the infringements that we have here and how Nehemiah dealt with each of them. Now, you remember early in the pandemic, there were a lot of TV commercials for storage spaces starting to pop up, right? Uh, perhaps because many Singaporeans were resorting to renting space in order to declutter our homes, to make room for work, for, work from home and home-based learning, right? But Tobiah the Ammonite 
the old enemy of the Jews did not want to rent the place. He had a better idea. In verse 4, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels and the tithes of grain, wine and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. Tobiah had gained a foothold in God's temple because of his relation with Eliashib, the priest. A large room in the temple that was originally reserved for the tithes and offerings that were meant to be distributed to the temple officers, right? it was converted into a storage space for Tobiah's household furniture. Tobiah was too cheapskate. Right? So Eliashib compromised the sanctity of the temple because of his personal relation with Tobiah. In his anger, Nehemiah threw out Tobiah's household furniture and gave the orders to cleanse the chambers and to restore the offerings. The next problem uh, is related in verses 10 to 14. Due to Eliashib's negligence to provide for the Levites and the singers, right, the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field so that they can earn a living for themselves. And so Nehemiah confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And Nehemiah also appointed reliable men as treasurers to ensure proper distribution of this to the Levites. The next two problems in verses 15 to 31, they have a parallel structure. It was in those days, plural, compared to on that day 12 years ago, that Nehemiah sees the transgressions of the people and he confronts the guilty. He uses a series of rhetorical questions based on Israel's history to prove his charge against them. And then there were further details about, how the, about this problem and finally, Nehemiah would then plea with God to remember. The third problem, very quickly, it has to do with the Sabbath. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Nehemiah discovered that people had been working on the Sabbath and they were buying and selling from foreign merchants. He confronted the nobles. He held them responsible. He barred the foreign merchants from entering and he posted Levites to guard the gates. Okay, so the, second, the third problem was the Sabbath. And the final problem in verses 23 to 29 uh, is intermarriage with pagans. In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they couldn't speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Nehemiah discovered that some of the Jews had intermarried with foreigners, and their children couldn't speak Hebrew. 
Okay, if this were Turks, they have learned to call their country Turkey instead of Turkey. It means that these Jews have lost their Jewish heritage and their Jewish faith since the scriptures will have been taught in Hebrew right? and they will, have, they will have known Hebrew. So the problem, the real problem here isn't race. It was not the, the issue of interracial marriages, but rather of faith. These children have forgotten the worship of Yahweh and they are following the faith of their pagan parents. And that is why from verse 25, Nehemiah confronted them, the parents, and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And he also made them swear an oath not to do so again. Now, why all this violence, this pulling out of hair? It's perhaps symbolic, right? It is to, it's meant to show the disgrace of their actions. You may remember in chapter 10, right, earlier in chapter 10, when Israel made a covenant with God, they had entered, they entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God. They vowed to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our, God, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. And over there in Nehemiah 3, if you were to trace out, the promises they made were these three. Right? Prohibition of intermarriage with pagans. Secondly, the observance of the Sabbath. And thirdly, the service of God's temple. Now in chapter 13, they are essentially breaking all three of these promises in the reverse order. The service of God's temple has been neglected. The Sabbath law isn't observed and intermarriage with pagans has taken place. The promise of a changed and obedient Israel couldn't be sustained. Twelve years later, it all come unraveled. Brothers and sisters and friends, we are like Israel. In the moments of our spiritual highs, we may enthusiastically make lofty promises to God. And we may change for the better for a time. Okay? As, we, as we come back, we, call, we coin this slogan, right? We return, we rebuild, and we, we revive after COVID. All of us are coming back with a, a bit of spiritual high, the excitement of seeing old friends, old brothers and sisters again. Right? And very often we can think that, oh, this is how things will be from now on. But as the ecstasy of our spiritual experiences wear off, and it will certainly do so. We find ourselves slumping back again to our old selves. We feel the disappointment and the disillusionment that sometimes unfulfilled political promises bring us. And that is why the Reformation slogan is very realistic, because life is reality, is real. And the Reformation slogan goes, Semper Reformenda, Reformata Est, in Latin, which means the church reformed is always in need of reforming. That's the reality. We need to be reformed again and again until the Lord returns. And so there's the bitter aftertaste that the book of Nehemiah leaves us at its end. Rather than the spiritual high of chapter 12, we are given a glimpse into Israel's spiritual slump in chapter 13. And so, brothers and sisters, what hope do you and I have to change our miserable life, to turn it around and to see lasting change? What is our hope in life and in death for a complete renewal? 
As we come to the New Testament, we see the, the Apostle Paul asks the same question as well in his letter to the Romans. In chapter 7, he confesses that his experience and that of ours as well is this. For, what I, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Like the Jews in Nehemiah's day, we may forget the worship of God because of the, the allure of the world. We may fail to trust God and keep His Sabbath because of the worries of life. We may fraternize with the world and so compromise in our faith. On good days and after a high such as the Gettys visit, we may find ourselves vowing to do better and we may even make some changes temporarily. But soon we will find ourselves like a dog that returns to his vomit, as a fool who repeats his folly. And yet Paul can still go on later to declare triumphantly in, in Romans 7, 24 onwards. He said, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. See, brothers and sisters in Christ, there is hope because the Lord Jesus Christ has died and is risen again to end the rule of sin in our lives and to remove the consequences of sin, which is death. He's made a new covenant with us by his blood on the cross so that God can keep his promise made through the prophet Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And that is perhaps why Nehemiah didn't fall into total despair as well. Although all his reforms were almost wiped out in his absence, how did Nehemiah have hope? Chapter 13, verse 14, he says, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Verse 22, Remember this also in my favour, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Verse 31, Remember me, O my God, for good. See, others may undo and even forget the work that he's done, but Nehemiah prays and he knows that God remembers and God will vindicate him. And so it is with us as well as Christ's disciples. We can also know this by, we can only do, know this by looking to the Lord Jesus and his death and resurrection as our only hope in life and death. And so as we began earlier by looking at question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, I'm going to ask you to end by reading the answer together right, to question one of another Reformed Catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism. Okay? So question one of Heidelberg Catechism goes, I'll read the question and we can read the answer together. Okay? 
Question one, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Let's read together. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen. Let's go to God in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you that Jesus Christ is indeed our hope and our comfort in life and in death. And so now we can live with confidence, knowing that Christ died for our sins and rose for our new life, that you remember us and are working all things for our salvation. So now we pray for the faith to believe what we've just heard and for the grace to live in ways that honour you above all. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.